He is the God of the universe, the maker of everything, the one who spoke the universe into existence and, and those sorts of things. And, and then he comes down into our world and not only that, into a fallen world and into a body and then like into a woman and then he gets born in a manger. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Karen. Good morning. And Tracy. Good morning. And Amy. Howdy. It is a special week for us in many, many ways. On the one hand, we are... For us, as we're recording, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and so we're all moving into the holiday season, which is awesome. But we're also, and I don't know if the rest of you realize this, especially the two of you who have been on here the longest, uh, this is the week that we would be celebrating the anniversary of the beginning of the podcast. So we are actually starting our fourth year into the podcast. Nice. Woohoo! <laughs> I was like, I'm kind of excited about it. That was a little uh, quiet and crickety there. <laughs> well, and, and I think, I think I've been I've been there since day one. Oh, yeah. you had to throw that in there, didn't you? <laughs> huh? I'm you the newbie. I'm the only one who thought to say woohoo. <laughs> Matt, I think, we were I think it's cool. Yesterday. Like I've learned a lot. I just I think it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Matt and I were talking yesterday in class, and when I start three on episode three or four, yeah. Yep. I think you started with episode three. You started when we, when we started talking about Job. Yep. I'm pretty sure you oh, were yeah, there that for the with Job. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. But you just think about how much has happened since then. You know, we used to meet in one room uh, and then and then we went through the COVID pandemic. And Wait, had... you mean we used to record face to face with our breath touching each other in the middle of the room? We did. How gross, huh? <laughs> like eating birthday cake. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> did that child spit on that cake uh it's okay <laughs> those yeah, thoughts so... do cross your mind yeah. <laughs> it's okay so that just a small rabbit trail here at church this weekend after church i went up and I was working with like the week to week church keyboardist and this guy who likes to sing. And we were sorting out some of the music that we were going to do around Christmas time. And I was struggling to uh, explain one of the things I was saying. So I bumped the piano player guy and I said, scoot over. And he said, OK. He was looking down at his hands and he takes his hands off the keyboard and he says, OK. And he kind of laughed and then he got out of my way and I sat down at the keyboard and there were there were fresh droplets of spit on the keys ah, and I was you. like all right <clears throat> all right it's fine it's fine <laughs> <laughs> sorry I can speak to this issue as a veterinarian our hands our hands do wash <laughs> just our wash. skin is cleanable <clears throat> Just do it before you touch your face. <laughs> and there are gloves for the veterinarians that go all the way up to your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's like yesterday we had after church, we usually have, we always have snacks and our, our, our snack ladies made nachos for everybody. 
and you look around and people are, you know, I mean, it's got cheese, so I'm happy, you know, but you look around and everybody's like licking their fingers and then everybody's going and shaking hands and you're going, oh, no, <laughs> we should have learned not to do that by now. <laughs> okay. Well, this last, this last week I went over to see a client who's a heavy, heavy smoker. She's got a terrible smoker's cough. And she was admiring the jacket that I was wearing. It was just one that she hadn't seen before. It got pretty chilly here this last week. So I was kind of bundled up. And she was like, well, that's a cute coat. I don't think I've seen you wear that before. And I said, no, I don't think you have. And she and I said, it's really soft. Here, feel it. And as I was walking across her living room to have her feel the sleeve, she had a smoker's cough attack, covered her mouth with her hand, and then reached directly out with a warm, damp hand and felt my sleeve. And I said, did you just cough in your hand and then feel my jacket with it? And she goes, no, I coughed into this hand. And she holds up her hand that had a cigarette in it. She goes, oh, wait, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Ah, sorry, I got distracted. Well, we were just, <laughs> we were just talking about surgeries and things and how I don't get bugged and worried about, you know, grossed out about those things. I could, I could eat and watch a surgery at the same time. Wouldn't bother me at all. But the idea of somebody's saliva getting on me or there's not, ah, it's just, that's just disgusting. So disgusting. And then after, after the whole pandemic thing, it's just like, come on people. Didn't we learn this by now? <laughs> but that is a because, because of all that I deal with in a liquid sense, the one thing that bothers me the most is drool. Dog drool <laughs> is disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> so my whole medical stuff started in the laboratory. And any bodily fluid didn't bother me. But mm -hmm. sputum is yeah. the worst. Yes. It makes so me just, like, gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> you may have to edit it out there. You may need to edit this, Matt. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Because, well, we're so far off track now, which who's surprised by this by now? Uh, but um, but so, <laughs> oh, there's no way to segue out of this right now. So I'm just going to keep going forward. <laughs> okay. I did, though, mention that we're moving into the holiday season. And so I've got lights on my roof. I haven't turned them on yet. I don't turn them on until Thanksgiving, but lights are up and you know, starting to think about putting the tree up and that sort of thing and considering the gifts and all that. Which is very fortunate for us at, at this time because this episode, if my if my calculations are correct, is going to land right before, actually the weekend before Christmas. And so and that is fortuitous because that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because not only have we celebrated an anniversary, not our, only are we moving into a different uh, the holiday season, but we're also beginning the New Testament today. And this is huge because as we're celebrating that anniversary, the podcast has been studying the Old Testament now for three years. And we've been watching the way that God worked and revealed himself gradually over time to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do for you. I've had a plan for you since before uh, things went bad. And now that plan is starting to come into fruition. This is exactly what you have all been waiting for for 4,000 years. And uh, and so it's very exciting to me to be able to now 
we're going to our study will somewhat while it is just a continuation, it's going to somewhat shift now from looking forward to something to now looking at what was looking forward to. <clears throat> so I'm excited about that, being able to now look into the New Testament, starting with the Gospels today and uh, and and moving into that. But before we can really get into that, I mean, a couple things that I think is good for us to recognize here is that between the time of Malachi, which we just talked about last week, and now as we get into the Gospels, there's been a span of 400 years that's been basically silent from God. There's nothing in the Bible, really, that talks about that 400 years at all. If we want to know anything that was going on, we sort of have to just look into history and and see what was going on. And so some of the things we were looking forward to, and we talked about at the time, uh, was the, the, Gre- the, the Greek Empire rising through Alexander the Great. Um, and seeing that empire divided amongst his generals, which was predicted in Daniel. We have seen uh, the Roman, as I, I believe it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 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 historians, but Antioch, and I'm going to say it wrong, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, he, tried, he took that some time there and tried to eradicate uh, the Jewish religion. Yep. He actually tried to destroy all the copies of the Torah. He actually put a statue of Zeus in the temple, in the temple in Jerusalem. There was the Maccabean revolt, which we've talked about a little bit here with the Maccabees. We don't really get much about them in the, actually, I don't think we get anything about them in the Bible, but um, it is a piece of history. But there we get the, uh, that's where we get Hanukkah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, that, that, that idea of Hanukkah comes from the Maccabean revolt. And um, let's see here. And then about 63 BC, Jerusalem got conquered by Rome through a siege and there was massacres of priests and soldiering entering the most holy place. And so that gives us some context then of a 400 year span where a lot happened. But interestingly, we really don't have scripture about it. I, I guess some of that stuff with the Maccabees maybe is found in the Apocrypha, but by and large, at least in the in the Protestant world, the Apocrypha isn't viewed as scripture because there's considered to be some errors in there. And basically everything of spiritual value that could be taken from there is already found in the other books that are in the Bible that we that we have um, accepted. So anyway, all that is a long way of saying stuff happened. And now we're in a, in a new era. As we begin into the story, now last week I had given a chronology, I'd thrown out a chronology to us to read, and I kind of decided that the Bible plan I've been following with this, at least in this aspect, really is kind of way out in left field. And so um, we're, we're kind of going to be bouncing all around in, uh, in a couple of books, specifically the books of Matthew and the book of Luke today. And we want to start with Matthew 1, with a genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogies aren't generally very interesting to read, uh, but I found a, I, there's a couple of points in this particular genealogy that Matthew gives that really stand out to me as a being of interest when you consider who Jesus is, what he represents, being the Messiah, being the, the, you know, the, the promised king of Israel that's going to rule forever. Um, we're reminded that one of his ancestors is Ruth. 
where it says uh, in verse five, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth was a Moabite. And so to have to have this outsider be a part of the the genetic makeup of Jesus, if you want to say it that way, um, is interesting in a culture that really valued that purity of of that gene line. We are reminded that David had his son Solomon through a woman who was somebody else's wife. You know, I like to go back to five, too, because I always think of Rahab, too. And people seem to overlook that. But Rahab um, uh, was a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. I think Rahab's name comes up in Luke's genealogy, which Uh will come up later. But yeah. I had a reference in mind to Psalm 132, verse 11. Uh, the Lord hath sworn unto David, of the fruit of thy body will I sit upon thy throne. So the Lord is speaking and saying, I'm going to come you know, through the descendants of David. But it's just such interesting wording. Of the fruit of thy body will I sit upon thy throne uh, in reference to this genealogy. Yeah, there's so many things with the genealogy that's, that's interesting here. Um, and things that you... You wouldn't at first expect of the one known as the son of God, the one known of as king, the one that is very much placed on, uh, rightfully so, placed on the pedestal to be looked at as as divine and great and wonderful. Uh, the one that jumps out at me, you know, is uh, verse six. Jesse begat King David and David begat Solomon of her who had been the wife of Uriah. Mm-hmm. And so we already have a foreigner. So we've got Ruth and then we have a murderer. And then Tracy brought up, we have a prostitute mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's like, okay, this is how forgiving God is. He's like, no, if you have faith in me, we can, we can still use you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, I thought it was interesting. I mean, this is, I mean, we all know this is an old patriarchal society. There's only a few women mentioned, and we've now mm-hmm. highlighted all of them, aside from Mary. Right? Right, yeah. So you've got, you've got a prostitute, a Moabitess, a married woman, and a virgin. Mm-hmm. Those are the four women that are highlighted in this whole line of dudes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, we also have Tamar. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh so, yes. yeah, here's an interesting story, right? And if someone doesn't remember, or if they weren't with the podcast earlier, I mean, Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Mm-hmm. And he does her wrong, according to their customs. And so she dresses herself up as a prostitute, sleeps with him, and has his kid. And uh, she's in the ancestry of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the tribe of Judah. Like, this is... This is the grandfather of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty interesting. And then he he kind of wraps it up, or Matthew wraps up the genealogy with the long with the succession of kings that we that we talked about, many of who were recognized as doing evil. Specifically pointed out that they did evil. They were they were idolaters. They were they I don't know they they were some of them wiped people out for no good reason they were just bad what we consider bad people and they are in 
the, the genealogy of Jesus. But this is exactly why Paul called this, why he told the Israelites not to engage with vain genealogies. Yeah. Right? Like, so like, oh, well, I'm of the tribe of whatever, or I'm of the tribe of like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, those tribes were made up of people and those mm -hmm. people were perfectly normal. So stop. Mm -hmm. It is your individual positioning to God that makes the difference. It is not your genealogy. Yeah. Now, in this case, the reason it yeah. matters is because there were like a bunch of prophecies that said this, 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 right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and then in a more practical sense, it shows that record keeping existed, even though this was thousands of years before our time. And so we might, so a, a borderline believer, non-believer might hesitate to be like, oh, well, how do they even know? It's like, how do they even know he came from the tribe of Judah, from the, from the line of David? How do they even know that that prophecy came true? Because they wrote it down. Like even then, they were, they were keeping records. So yeah. to me, those are the value points. Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine that people who were so, you know, uh, wrapped up in those genealogy things, this would have been, this might have been a bit of an eye opener to them. If these are people, I'm not sure who specifically Matthew was writing to. You find that different, uh, different gospel writers were writing to different people. If you assume that he's probably writing for people who are already following Jesus at the time. Uh, because the early church didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know. So if these are being written to those people, it might it might have been a bit of an op eye opener to say, look, his his makeup isn't what we would consider perfect, yet he is the one that we're calling God. To your point, Matthew is writing to the Jewish believers, though, and so he's very consistent in pointing out things that have to do with their prophecies. And he's real, he wrote it in Hebrew, um, you know, so he's very much reaching out to Jewish people who are interested in this coming Messiah. And he uses a lot of information to, um, to point out to them things that will ring true in their mind. Like they'll be like, oh yeah, that was prophesied. Oh yeah, yeah. that's our history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so in, in terms of storyline, the, the gospel of Luke is probably the most, oh, what word would I, would I want to use? Comprehensive, I guess. Probably the most comprehensive version of the story of Jesus's birth. And also, interestingly to me, Matthew and Luke are the only ones who, who talk about it at all, because um, Mark and John don't. Not really. I mean, John has a yeah, even John doesn't really talk about the birth. But anyway, that's 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 totally an aside. So as we as we jump over now to the Gospel of Luke, it starts out with a dedication to a guy named Theophilus. It's a letter that he's writing to a friend, I suppose, a friend, a colleague, somebody that they're sharing information with. So it's interesting also that... Luke probably, when he's writing this, he's probably not thinking, you know what, someday this is going to be the Bible. It, it, I don't know, that, that just strikes no, me he's as writing it. He's writing it for historical reasons to his buddy Theopolis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he says, you know, like, lots of people have written this down. I've made a thorough investigation of everything that happened here, and I'm going to write a book also. Mm -hmm. He is continuing what he says is a practice of people um, relating their eyewitness accounts. 
which is interesting because I don't think he was there for the part we're going to be talking about today. But he claims to have perfect understanding. That's a claim I'm not sure I would ever be willing to make about much of anything. But um, this is this is Luke's position on it. But he says that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so Theophilus would be somebody who already knows a bit about Jesus, probably is already uh, studying and, you know, maybe trying to live as a Christian. And he's uh, Luke is trying to give him a little more information about it. Yeah. So I think probably Luke did get a lot of his information directly from Mary because chapter two, verse 50 says that um, she kept or hid all these things in her heart. So, you know, it seems like probably he met and knew Mary and talked to her and gathered some of this information directly from her. I could buy that. I could see how that could be a possibility. Yeah, because, you know, something that I was finding interesting here is that I, I, I would assume Theophilus here to be fairly prominent in the early church as somebody who came to Jesus without the Gospels as we have it here. Because a lot of times, I think when people are beginning Bible studies towards Christianity, a lot, they generally start with um, with the Gospels to tell the story of Jesus. And, and Theophilus would have come to this without these four books, without the New Testament at all. So it's some of it, a lot of it, like what we're going to read is probably what's been related to Luke through Mary, uh, a lot of his information is going to be Old Testament stuff that has pointed him to Jesus. So um, it's just a point of interest that that the way when once we get into like the Book of Acts and we see how the how the church just exploded and spread, that it was done without without any New Testament references, uh, as far as we know. So the, the real story begins, though, not with Jesus. It begins with an announcement made to a guy named Zacharias. And we're told that this is in the days of Herod, king of Judah. And it's he, Zechariah is a priest, and he is, has a wife named, named Elizabeth. They don't have any children, and they're both uh, getting up there in years. So in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the story of Abraham. I can't help seeing those echoes of an older couple with no children, and um, they get they get um, brought uh, a promise. Zacharias is burning incense in the temple, and I wondered when I was reading this something something tickled my brain. I said, "Why did Luke point this out that he's burning incense in the temple?" And so I I went back and was looking at what the incense in the temple was all about. It's uh, symbolic of prayers going to heaven. Yep. It's in front of the the veil that separates the ark and the most holy place. Um, the fire that burns the incense comes from the altar of burnt offering. The the altar that the incense is burned on is atoned for with the blood of the sacrifice, just like the rest of just like the rest of the uh just like the rest of the um uh stuff in the temple, but where these prayers then are going up. They're atoned for with the blood of the sacrifice. The the incense represents, as we know, looking back, it represents Christ's intercession for us. And that incense is always burning. And so, so he bumped up his prayer. This was a special prayer. This mm-hmm. was, you know, it was weighing heavy and hard on his mind. And 
and it was important to him. It wasn't just the average, you know, I don't want to even make it sound average, but our daily prayers. This was a little bit more. This was something more. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's in a position being a priest to do that because the priests are the only ones that are in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, prayer going up. Are we assuming that the prayer that the angel is talking about is a prayer that was uttered in that very moment? Well, as that's what I was just looking at here. Um, I didn't make that assumption. I thought of this similar to the prayer of Hannah, like an ongoing prayer, blah, 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 like, you know, years or months or whatever of pleading for this thing. And and the reason I think that is because it almost seemed like an old prayer, because think of what his response was when the angel says, "Okay, you're going to have a kid. That's how I took it, too. Yeah, it was something I, that I, didn't, I didn't for one second think that he had stopped to utter that prayer in that moment. Otherwise, he would have like been leaping about with excitement that he got an instant answer to his prayer instead of pointing out the biological facts that are in the way. Yeah, there's nothing here that talks about it. Luke says they don't have any children, but it, there's nothing here about a prayer about wanting to have children. In fact, when we get down, it, it sounds like Zacharias had pretty much given up the idea. But we are told that this is when it says the whole multitude of the people were praying outside, quote unquote, at the hour of incense. And and this would have been happening, according Day to some notes of yeah. Reading here, it says priests offered incense in connection with the morning and evening sacrifices. So at a time when a sacrifice is being made, and we know that the sacrifice was looking forward to Christ, his sacrifice and his ministry, when that prayer is being presented at the at the altar of incense from the people outside, Zechariah is presenting it symbolically through the incense this is when an angel appears and says that the prayer is heard well imagine this like you just think like you've had this private prayer all along you know i wish i wish i wish i wish my kid my wife had children i wish i had children blah blah blah. but then um he's at the temple offering the customary sacrifices and suddenly he finds out that the reason he's, you know, his children have been withheld is because he fits into the prophecies. Like, how mm. cool is that? Yeah, that's that's kind of huge, actually. Yeah, because, um, you know, I mean, I suppose it's, I, I don't think it's without reason to assume that he would be offering some of his own prayer at the same time. You know, and if this was something on his mind about wanting to have children, even though he's old, that 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 may have been on his mind as he was offering the prayer. But but the prayers of the people at the time would have been in conjunction specifically with those offerings, those offerings that were were representing Jesus. And then we're told that. An angel of the Lord. And it's interesting. It says an angel of the Lord instead of what we have in the past. We've, I think, usually it says the angel of the Lord. Well, angel just means messenger. Correct. Correct. But it, I don't know. It just seemed like an interesting departure from what we've usually heard of the angel of the Lord, which a lot of times seems like probably Jesus himself. This time we are specifically told this angel's name is. Gabriel. That's a that's a name that probably people are probably very familiar with. The angel Gabriel. He's. I mean, it's in a it's in one in in a, in a Christmas carol. The angel Gabriel. Um, and so, it's interesting to get a specific name of an angel at this time. 
Yeah, I think it increases the drama, too, because we're told first an angel of the Lord, just some angel appears beside him and the angel tells him all these things. And then only when Zechariah questions the angel, then then the angel reveals his name and he says, look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord and I have told you what's going to happen. You know, like, hey, buddy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> little man, be quiet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we get told this this angel comes. Zacharias is afraid. He says, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. Elizabeth will bear a son. And so uh, his name will be John, which I had to look up that because I'm like, okay, why is God naming this kid? Why, you know, if God is giving this kid a specific name, those name is going to have a, it's going to be for a purpose. And the name John means Yahweh has been gracious. And so even the That's name... Nice. Even the name of of John in, in his mission to come is spelled out in his name that God has been gracious. God is doing what he said he was going to do. This kid's going to, when he raises up, he's not going to have any wine or strong drink. And it says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb, which we'll see something about here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. And will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. We just last week talked about that prophecy in Malachi. That was in Malachi four, five, and six that 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 foretold this going, this prophet going forth before uh, or in the spirit of Elijah. Now the name Gabriel, I had to look that up too. It was like why, why, why is he given this name? But the name Gabriel means God is my strength. And he says uh, he stands in the presence of God. So this, I don't know, I, we can make a, a little inference here, possibility. It doesn't specifically say it here, but considering some of the story we know at this point, perhaps Gabriel is standing in a position that was once held by Lucifer, that right-hand man right there next to God. And, and when Lucifer got expelled, Gabriel took the place. And uh, so now this is a this is a creature, a being who literally stands physically right next to God. And he this is somebody who's going to probably be very in tune to all the planning, everything that's going on. Anybody who's ever close to a king in in any um, in any country that is that close is going to know all the ins and outs and workings uh, probably better. Top secret conversations. Yeah, they're going to know better than anybody except for that leader themselves. I get that with Gabriel, this is literal, but I sure wish that everybody here on Earth thought of this as their job description also. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> standing in standing in God's presence and um, relaying a message. Yeah, this is who I am and this is what I do. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah, well, think of how much better things would be. And then maybe when I got mad and said, and now you will be silent, would you listen to me? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, so the so in reference to that, Zacharias, when he's told you're going to have a child, Zacharias, just like a, uh, Abraham and or specifically uh, Sar- Sarah or Sarai back then, he's like, how? I'm old. There's no way this is going to happen. Um because the way he puts it, how will I know this? I'm old. Uh, um, and then he's told, well, 
since you didn't believe, you're going to be mute until the child is born. Um, it just those echoes again are so interesting. <laughs> I, you know, an angel is standing next to you, telling you something is going to happen. You're in the temple, right outside of the veil that separates you from the most holy place, where it's believed that God literally comes and sits, and you don't believe what you're told because of your situation. It just makes me wonder if how I would how I would be in the same in the same uh, in the same boat, you know, because it's just sort of baffling to me that he's specifically told by an angel something's going to happen and he just can't believe it. But um, as as it turns out, Elizabeth does conceive and uh, says she's hid away for five months. I think that may was maybe just a uh, a custom of the time that when a woman was pregnant, she would just kind of go have private time. Do you guys remember anything about that from I think maybe that was maybe alluded to earlier in in, in the Bible? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember so too much about that. I mean, the only thing I know from biblical customs, and this is just from my own sort of extra biblical research, is how they handled like women's, you know, cycles. I don't know too much about how they handled pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, who, I, suppose, I mean, I suppose there could be any number of reasons why, but, uh, you know, maybe. You know, she's an older woman who's pregnant. Maybe it's just odd. Maybe it's uh, just to guard the health. Maybe, I don't know. But it's just a custom that they had. I don't know. But now we get into the real meat of the story, the part everybody has been really been waiting for. And Gabriel, we're told, is sent to Nazareth. And this is where a young girl named Mary lives. And she is supposed to marry a man named Joseph who is in the line of David. Luke very specifically points this out, that uh, that uh, uh, Joseph is in the house of David. And this is about, this was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we're told. So we're given this time frame of how all this is going on. So just and, the beginning of the beached whale feeling months. <laughs> as, uh, yeah, yeah, as uh, Elizabeth is, is feeling that... Uh, Oh, what do I know? I'm a man. I don't know what it feels like. <laughs> to, be, to feel like a beached whale? Good save. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to point that out. <laughs> uh, uh, but then we start, we get some of the most famous quotes in the Bible, at least especially at Christmas time. Things um, as Gabriel comes to Mary, he says, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. You will conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, which... Uh, I had to do a little research on again, remembering that uh, this is the the group. No, I got to think about this. This is the anglicized version of the Greek name that is the of uh, it's the Greek version, I should say, of a Hebrew name that we would think of as Yeshua or or Joshua. We've anglicized it to Joshua. But so as he's telling her, this is going to be his name. And that name, Jesus, or or Yeshua, means the Lord is salvation. So even Jesus' name, again, is pointing out something specific. Not that he's the only kid who was named Jesus. We've learned about other people named Jesus later on in the Bible. Um, but it's just, it's very special that God has called him this. The Lord is salvation. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. Uh, he's from the throne of David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
this is the stuff that everybody has been looking forward to for centuries. This is the stuff that everybody has been studying prophecies about. This is the stuff that has been on everybody's mind for a long time. And that's starting to come to a culmination with this young girl. I want to go back to verse 29 for just a second. Sure. Um, in the King James, it's so interesting. Um, well, first, you know, the angel says to her, blessed art thou among women. And in the King James, it says, and she cast about in her mind what manner of salutation this might be. And so I was thinking about those words and and she was um, she was mulling it over in her brain, deliberating, pondering, considering, thinking, what? What did you just say to me? <laughs> it's such an interesting moment because she's a young girl. And this man says, I mean, this angel says to her, blessed art thou among women. She doesn't even know what he's talking about at that moment. And, yeah. and so then a little while later, she begins to understand what he's saying. But years later, apparently, she remembered that. Uh, she remembered that feeling of, huh? Um, <laughs> which I think is uh, is sort of sweet. You know, she's such an innocent person. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that huh moment, it comes out it comes out when you get into verse 34, where she says, how can this be? Because she's like, how can this be? I've never even been with a man. Uh, but somehow her questioning is different than Zechariah's questioning because she's treated very differently here. I spent some time kind of chewing on that, wondering that exact same thing, like. Why is it okay for this person to question the logistics, but not okay for that person to question the logistics? Mm -hmm. And the only thing I could come up with was that Zechariah was older and had had a longer time to walk with God and understand the power of God. That was the only thing I could come up with was that she was young mm -hmm. and hadn't built a timeline with God yet. And Zacharias was older and had had time to build a timeline with God. You know, I was thinking about that, too. And, you know, I, I could totally see where Karen was, you know, time, you know, um, your foundation, your faith, that kind of thing. And then I was also thinking, too, how, and this is not putting myself in that position or anything, but only relating it to me personally is when you find out that you're going to have a baby, it's huge for the guy. Don't get me wrong. But it's more internalized i think for the female that's a big step that's a big step for like karen was saying somebody that's very young and then the whole process of it and how personal it was and how it affect them not only emotionally but physically for the female and guys it's it it's just it's a joy it's a joy of being a parent you know that kind of stuff and so i thought about it as the gravity of the of the message and how it affects them physically, emotionally, spiritually, that kind of thing. I, yeah, I think all of that is true. But I also think that it's just the nature of her question that is different from Zacharias. Because where Zacharias is like, how? I'm old. Mary is like, really? How's it going to happen? Tell me how this is going to work. You know, because I don't, I don't think hers is a question of doubt. I think hers is a question of... What happens next? Really? Wow. That's the way I take it. Because then the way that it's answered isn't isn't in 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 like uh uh you know, why are you questioning? Why are you doubting? The answer she's given is the specifics. This is how it's gonna happen. So I kind of imagine that, you know, she is so young, she probably had just learned about how it really does happen. 
And so this may have been just, she's completely astounded. And like most of us, when we're young, when we find out how a new human comes into the world, we're like, huh? Um, you know, it, mm -hmm. it seems unrelated to the birth of a child. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it's interesting in my mind to think that she may really have been thinking, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there was probably some of that. Um, but it does, it, there does seem to be a more of a matter of trust on her mm, part okay. than, than maybe Zacharias was, was, was showing because Zacharias was just showing an incredulity, in, in, incredulity. Right. Uh, where, whereas Mary seems to be showing, at least as I read it and try to read between the lines, where Mary is showing more of a curiosity, where she seems willing, um, but just kind of wondering, okay, okay, but how, you know? Well, um, especially with that last line, that last line where she says, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it according mm -hmm. to thy word. Mm hmm. Yeah. And she's told this is going to be the child this from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and this child is going to be called the son of God. And um, Mary just shows a compliance to it. A submittal. Um, I actually have some different words that I wrote down. Agreement, submittal, compliance. Uh, she's just she's willing. She's shows a willingness to go along with with the plan, uh, which is rather huge on her part because uh, I, I don't think it I don't think it says no it doesn't say anywhere but I think the speculation is she's somewhere around what 14 years old at this Probably, point yeah. yeah we don't we don't really know but um, she's probably in her young teens which just blows my mind away thinking because my son my youngest just turned 15 and I'm thinking holy smokes I can't imagine him as a parent but um, but for, but this 14 year old girl is 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 willing uh, mary decides to go visit elizabeth who is a relative and it's an interesting little story there about when mary is being greeted the baby in in elizabeth's womb now a six-month-old what word what do you use are they still considered a fetus at that point i don't know yeah. i guess so. i guess so you know um, the six month, well, oh boy, there's a, there's a big old rabbit hole. We could go down with that. The six month old fetus, uh, leaped in her womb, recognized this is the woman who is either carrying or is going to carry. Cause I don't think we're really, I guess at this point, at this point, do we assume that Mary is pregnant? Yes, I think so. And so she's recognizing that, or excuse me. Elizabeth's baby is recognizing that that those very, very beginnings of pregnancy that Mary is now having is the Messiah, is the promised one, is the son of God. That's really uh, kind of fascinating. And then Elizabeth says, it says, she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and says, blessed are you among women, echoing the words that Gabriel had said. Then we're given a song that Mary sings speaks like i don't know i wonder i wonder how this one kind of plays out because it seems unlikely that mary breaks into song here i don't know maybe this is um you know it, it, as you look at it in the bible it looks sort of as a poem i would i would suspect probably this is these these are thoughts that mary has taken some time and put together but 
the things that are written here really speak to Mary's uh, humility, her recognition of this great <laughs> position that God has put her in. Uh, she says things like, his mercy is on those who fear him. She shows recognition of God's working through Israel's history. Through She says he scattered the proud. He put down the mighty from their thrones. He exalted the lonely and he filled the hungry. He's helped Israel. He, this is the guy who spoke to Abraham. So it, it it's more of that recognition of what has been looked forward to for so long. And yes, even this girl knows that history. And even she herself has been looking forward to it and and is humble in her position. I mean, I, I, I think being told, hey, you know what? You're going to be. You are you are going to be the mother of God's child. You are going to be, as some people call her now, the mother of God. Boy, that would be uh, that would be a proud moment. And being being able to remain humble through that. Could be difficult. I think of that as a very intimidating moment. I do. Yeah. I think of that as an intimidating yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, because, mm -hmm. first of all, what human on the face of the earth could be judged worthy of that? And second yeah. of all, how am I supposed to raise him? How am I supposed to raise him? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. And that, That's you a know, huge that deal. Doesn't, Although, uh, I, you know, to be, you know, the flip side of that is, I wasn't raised in the Jewish, well, the Hebrew um, bloodline, where probably every young girl read about the promises and dreamed that maybe, maybe she would be the one. You know, it's like it, it, in the 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 Sabbaths where they covered the um, Immaculate Conception and this and that. I mean, probably every every Hebrew girl knew that. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, as we think of the prophecy. That had been told. Um, I mean, even Eve, from Eve on down, it was like, is this the one? Is this the child of promise? Is this the child of promise? But yeah, well, you talk about the prophecy being told, which was from, I have to look forward here, because it talks about it in a, in Matthew, talks about it in um, Isaiah. It was in Isaiah where they're told that a virgin, virgin will is conceive. going will conceive. Yeah. And, um, you know, this would have been known and so i hadn't thought about that before where the women themselves might have been been very in tune with that with that prophecy and i would suppose that once they have a child and it doesn't turn out to be the, the messiah they knew that they were out of the running um but perhaps a lot of women looking forward to that were seeing the seeing that as a possibility for their for themselves and so when mary gets told you're the one um yeah very very uh let me i guess it'd be scary scary um a, a position of honor but at the same time i don't know i don't know, I don't know how i would deal with it <laughs> but mary stays with elizabeth for three months and i kind of take that to be until john is born because it goes right into the birth of John. We know him as John the Baptist. I'm told that the neighbors and relatives take notice, which of course, I mean, I I think I remember reading somewhere they were in their 80s when, uh, when John is born. And so it makes sense that the relatives and neighbors are going to take notice when John is born. On eighth day, they take him to be sacrificed. Uh, <laughs> eighth day, they take him to be circumcised which was the custom. It was the law. 
uh, that the boys were, were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. And they want to name him Zacharias after his father. But, but Elizabeth is like, no, his name is John. They're like, they're like, you can't name him John. He doesn't have any relatives named John. <laughs> and so <laughs> I know Karen's got to have something to say about this. But So they, they go to Zechariah. Zechariah, what do you think we should name the boy? No, no. This is hilarious. Like, I can't even stand this section. It's so funny. Where is it? Uh, let's see. Okay. They go to circumcise the child. They're about to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother speaks up and says, no, he is to be called John. They said, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. So Zechariah has spent how many months deaf? Nine. Not deaf, mute. Like, you shall be silent until the child is born. And they made signs to the father. (laughs) They made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. And all I could think... Like I and I thought this earlier in the story. So in the part and okay, I admit it. I have a terrible sense of humor. But okay, so back to verse forty-one. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, and all I could think was, "He's not deaf. Stop Mm -hmm. shouting. (laughs) He's mute." You know what I mean? And it's just this whole thing is just so funny to me. Like. Nine months later, they still haven't figured out that he can hear but not speak. And so they're having a discussion in front of him about what to name his own child. (laughs) And then they sign to him. Okay, I'm done now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to me, it was just funny that they're like, no, lady, you're crazy. You can't name him John. They go to Zechariah, and he writes out his name is John. Um, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I've done enough to to upset the Lord. His name's John. Don't let's not even argue about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, his name is John. And then immediately he's able to speak again. It says he begins praising God. And then we're told that the hand of the Lord was with John. And all of the neighbors were filled with awe and said, Dude, we thought you were deaf. <laughs> yeah. Uh but then, but then Zechariah says he has a prophecy, and he basically is, he's relating that God has kept his promise to save us. He's remembered his covenant with Abraham. John will be called the prophet of the highest. He's going to prepare the way for him. Now we're going to have the knowledge of salvation, the remission of sins through the mercy of God. And he talks about light to those in darkness and the shadow of death. Uh, that shadow of death had me thinking back to uh, the Psalms, but... Um, Light to those in darkness and the shadow of death. That's kind of a powerful statement of its own. And, you know, when we get into the book of John talking about the darkness and the darkness didn't understand uh, or didn't comprehend, I think that's I think it's uh, kind of powerful that that um, there is such a discrepancy between the light and the dark and um, that that knowledge. Like as sort of like a theological understanding, verse 77, I thought was interesting to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And Mm -hmm. I I just thought that was cool because like that's that's how that's how we become. I mean, like salvation is an idea until it touches me. Right. 
when it touches me inside my life, then it comes alive because I can suddenly see its value. And then all of a sudden I want to be part of it. Like, no, no, no. What's my role? Thank you. Thank you. But what's my role now? What do I do? Well, for chronology's sake, we bounce back to Matthew chapter one now. And this is where we really get into the heart of what we think of as the Christmas story. We're, you know, I suppose we're all fairly familiar with it. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably you probably know the story, at least, you know, rudiment rudimentarily. If you've never even if you've never read the Bible, you probably, you know, some of the basics of it. Um, per- perhaps you're hearing this for the first time. I don't know. But we learned that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. She's supposed to marry him. Um, tradition holds that Joseph was probably significantly older than her. I don't I don't think we really know for sure. I'm not exactly sure why we get that tradition. Um, but but um, the point of it, though, is she's supposed to get married. She's not married. And Joseph learns that she's pregnant. And he wants to, the way the New King James and King James puts it, is to put her away. Basically, he wants... He's thinking about quietly divorcing her. They're not married yet, but in this case, a betrothal is just about as good as. And the idea of marrying a pregnant girl uh, at that time, wow, you know, not not probably just not going to happen. But then we're told an angel of the Lord, and I don't think we're told specifically here that this is Gabriel, but I think it probably is. Um, an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, this baby is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to have a son, and you should call his name Jesus, remembering that is the name means the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is why you're going to name him Jesus. This is all going to be a fulfillment of the prophecy that we've read in Isaiah 7 that says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that title of God with us is going to be bestowed on this on this boy as well. And then we're told then that Joseph goes ahead and marries her and says he doesn't know her till she delivers Jesus. So there is no there's no physical intimacy of sexual type while she is pregnant with Jesus. That's a bit of restraint on the part of a, of a guy who just got married. I mean, I know we don't know, and it doesn't really matter. It's not like germane to the story. But I am curious when they actually got married, because she goes and sees Elizabeth and stays there for three months, you know, and then did they get married when she came back? Or I don't know, just curious. Could, well, it could be. I mean, when do you when do you generally start showing in a pregnancy? Around Depends that time? Built, but usually, yeah. you know, everybody's different. Yeah, yeah, three to five months, depending on how you're built. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm... You know, I don't I, I don't know how long they were they were betrothed. Um, it says she was found to be with child. I don't even know what that means. Like, does that mean she got caught like she hadn't told anybody? You know, I don't know. You, well, yeah. Or, you know, was she starting to show was, right. uh, you know, where was in the, it in the movies that they make about it? They always, you know, show her like coming back from visiting Elizabeth and all of a sudden she's showing like she climbs out of the wagon and he's there to greet her. And all of a sudden she has a belly and he's like, Oh, sweetheart. <laughs> well, that's not, that's not too far out of the realm though, because sure. if she was betrothed 
before she went to to see um, Elizabeth, comes back three months pregnant. One, Joseph is going, what were you doing while you were gone? Why, why do you, sh- you know, why are you coming back pregnant? Because I haven't been with you. So what's happening there? We're not married. This is this is uh, this is going to be a scandal. Uh, so I can I could I guess I could s- suspect that probably they were betrothed before she went to see Elizabeth oh, yeah, and definitely. potentially ended up getting married shortly after here. Yeah. What jumps out at me is that Joseph must have some sort of relationship with God to where he is able to recognize like he's not a flighty guy. He's not somebody that flies off the handle or freaks out about stuff. He is met by an angel of the Lord. And when he hears that the Holy Ghost has come upon his betrothed wife, he believes it. Like he doesn't look back. He's like, all right, I am her protector. I am going to be the father of this child. And the Lord has told me this. So he strikes me as a very solid person. Like Joseph's that guy, that decent human being who knows the Lord and uh, he just takes this on himself like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be that guy. Yeah. Just accepting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting that it's the priest who questions and it's the common guy who goes, okay. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. It probably wasn't that simple. I mean, I can, you know, I can picture in my head, an angel shows up to you and you know, what, what you know, first of all, what is what does he look like? What does Gabriel look like? You know, we don't know. We always, we always uh, have the. I think you know. I think if Gabriel shows up, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, but uh, you know, we always have the depictions of what an angel looks like, and you know, we've talked about in the past how that depiction isn't really given to us in the Bible. But you know, is he glowing? Is he? Is he have a huge stature? You know what? You know, somehow or other, I imagine him still being very imposing to a common human being and 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 giving a message and and uh joseph acquiescing to to what uh is being told to him and going ahead and marrying this woman now that he understands this is not she wasn't out fooling around this is this is all from god but yet well, this... he, recognized, he recognized that that message was true and he knew enough about he knew he was close enough to God to understand and to believe instantly and then do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder, too, if it's it's just that a little bit of reassurance in in 120 that it's, you know, it basically says that, you know, Gabriel told him, don't be afraid to take her as, as your wife. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's that little bit of, of reassurance. Because, you know, maybe it was just the assumption that, you know what, this this moral, this human is going to know that He's going to have questions and let me give him some reassurance off right off the start. Yeah. Don't well, be afraid to take her as your wife. And I'll, let me just make it plain and clear. So you, you get the message. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think we could probably make some assumptions too, that there was a reason why Mary and Joseph were chosen for this honor. And it wouldn't be just that they were randos picked up off the street and Hey, you know what? Hey, you want to have the son of God? No, I think this is probably two people who were probably very faithful, very uh, uh, studied and and knowing kind of what was going on so that when an angel does show up, sure, you're probably going to be scared just because it's something that you don't see every day. But at the same time, 
it's the sort of thing that you've kind of always wished you could see this. You always wanted to be a part of it. And when it happens, you're just filled with awe and wonder rather than utter fear and, and um, confusion. And so when an angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid, Joseph can go, Oh, okay. Okay. I guess this is going to be all right. Well, look how the angel assures him. He doesn't show him some sort of sign or anything. He gives him one of the prophecies. And so Joseph is someone who knows the prophecies and believes the word of God. And so he doesn't need some sort of visible sign or, you know, fantastic apparition or something. I mean, the angel comes to him, but he doesn't need anything else. He can be told through the scriptures, this is what was intended to happen by the Lord. Yeah, recognizing right, recognizing that what he's been studying is come is happening. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, this is where things start to come together in ways. It's one of those examples of how things come together in ways that you wouldn't ever really expect them to be, because prophecies had told that stuff was going to happen in certain locations, and here we've got Mary and Joseph in Nazareth. If we look back and remember, we're not told that the that the baby is going to be born in Nazareth. We're told the baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. So how are they going to end up in in Bethlehem? But we're told that a decree comes out from Caesar Augustus and all the world, and by all the world, basically meaning the Roman Empire, is going to be registered. And and, uh, it's I think it's basically for taxation. They're all going to be registered. We're also told this is while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we're given a very specific time frame that we can look back at when this happened. So if you wanted to look into the history of this, you can look and see about when this was all going on. And these kind of things always give me assurance that there's relevance that we can look back on to put it into perspective. Maybe you said this, but um, I just want to point out that you did jump back over to Luke chapter two. And I find this passage very important because it really does anchor all of this in history. Like these are, these are real events that happened under a real government. So that's all. Yeah, no, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what I was trying to say, but not as eloquently. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Real, real stuff at a real time with a real government. And, and so we can, we, we know that this, this is uh, th- th- we're given a, a perspective to to find uh, believability and evidence in it. Just one more thought, and that's that the word Bethlehem means the house of bread. And of course, you know, later on we meet our Savior and he says, uh, I am the bread of life. And so that, I find that particularly appealing. I love knowing the meanings of words. And, and I think uh, that one in particular is rich. It is. I didn't know that. That's yeah, a, I didn't a, know that either. That's cool. Either. Yeah, that's a new little wrinkle in my brain because Bethlehem <laughs> has been yeah Bethlehem has been called as it says that Joseph takes Mary from Galilee to Bethlehem, the city of David. It was known as the city of David, and so that's you know that has relevance because of the lineage of David. But that what did you say, House of Bread? That's that's the House of Bread. Yeah that that is that is cool. That That is is very interesting that this is where the Messiah is being born. But so they go to Bethlehem because Joseph is a descendant of David. And while they're there, Mary goes into labor. And we're told uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So we're at a time. Bethlehem's a small little place. And if all the people who are supposed to be coming back there are, are, you know, descendant from that place, uh, that's going to be a lot of people coming in. Um, It's going to be hard. It's probably going to be hard to find a place to live. Now we've, We've got a picture in our head that is that comes from paintings and traditional, you know, our nativity scenes and this and that of like a wooden barn type structure that Jesus would have been born in. But the reality is probably more that it would have been similar to a cave and that, in fact, a lot of things I've seen is that a lot of times people, when they had animals that they brought inside it was actually a part of their home where like the stables would be below and the living quarters would be up above and so it's not like it's not like mary and joseph were simply being rejected no we don't have room no 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 because at that time it was very much expected that you bring people into your home you bring travelers in and so the real point here, though, is a place was found for them, and it wasn't an ideal place. It's not where you would expect the God of the universe to have his have his birth. Um, you wouldn't expect that everybody goes, no, I'm sorry, we just don't have room for that right now. So it it, it is in such a lowly place for this to happen, for, for Jesus to be born in a stable and then placed in a manger, the, the feeding trough of animals doesn't exactly seem sterile, hygienic. It certainly isn't glorious. So I guess right now is just a good time to mention, you know, that I don't want us to overlook the condescension of this. I mean, he is the God of the universe, the maker of everything, the one who spoke the universe into existence and, and those sorts of things. And, and then he comes down into our world and not only that into a fallen world, and into a body, and then like into a woman, and then he gets born in a manger. And it, re- it reminds me of that um, mm-hmm. passage in the screw tape letters when the devil is speaking condescendingly about our sort of our animal existence, I guess. And he says, This thing born in a bed, like it's so mm. low, so low. And then Jesus takes it even lower by being born and put in a manger. You know, not even a normal mm-hmm. birth, not even a hygienic birth, like what you're talking about. This is a this is low and kind. Yeah, you would think that at the yeah at at the time, the best probably they could have expected was that that a baby would be born in your own home. At least you'd have that that relative comfort and familiarity, and he's not even given that. One of the things that I've always understood was important about Jesus' ministry was to be visibly stripped of all human uh, accoutrements, I guess would be the word. So, like, there's, he's, he, his royal standing is gone. There's no human fanfare or respect. There isn't even basic health and hygiene processes. He's born in a family of human shame because his mother is pregnant before marriage. He, you know, and we, and we know all kinds of, I mean, he's born poor. Uh, we know that, that uh, Nazareth has a terrible reputation. You know, he, 
he isn't even attractive. Like Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty so that we might desire him. Every human trapping that other humans might gravitate towards was gone. And I, I've always considered that an important part of his ministry is, is that his his starting place was behind the line of the average human. Like he had all these human strikes against him. And yet character mm-hmm. came through and the power of God overcame all of that. So everything that we're saying here, I totally agree with, but I've always thought that it was rather on purpose. Oh, certainly. Certainly. I think so too. Super, on purpose on God's part yeah. where he, he, he orchestrated it to all to, to happen this way. Absolutely. And it's so opposite to the way we choose our leaders now, you know, especially since television. I, I, I remember hearing once upon a time that most likely if it had been the era of television, Abraham Lincoln would have never been to, uh, elected because he wasn't particularly photogenic, <laughs> you know, uh, the, we, we look at our leaders, we want them to at least have a certain look about them. We want to know that they come from a fairly decent background. We want to know that, that you know, that they've been brought up a certain way. And and none of that, none of that is what's happening with Jesus here. And he's starting out, he's starting out with such, you know, he's just kind of starting out behind the ball, so to speak. He's uh, in the lowest of low. It's it's pretty amazing what he what he has to overcome to accomplish what he did in a short time well and he has to be seen and heard Mm -hmm. like every everything about his birth and raising was ignorable yeah pretty much yeah i think you know also too that he just had to meet that common ground of being able to reach every single person you know, so if he was if he was born with with privilege here on Earth, then it could always be said that you know what he didn't represent everyone. So it had he had to come in at almost let's just call it the lowest point. So he he met everyone's needs. Yeah. Well, the story goes on. Uh, Luke starts to tell us about shepherds out with their flocks at night, which this should tell us something here. Our 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 Christmas traditions, of course, is that we celebrate it on December twenty fifth. Uh, it's right at the beginning of winter. Um, this verse alone, right here, should tell us that December twenty fifth is not the birth of is not the birthday of Jesus, um, because most likely, when it's cold like this, I mean, I'm looking out my window right now, and where where three of us are in Colorado, I've heard that the 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 climate is very similar here to what it would have been in that area around Jerusalem. And I'm looking out here, and it's middle of November when we're recording, and we've got snow. It's cold, and you're probably not out in the field with sheep when it's like that. So, so right off the bat, we're you know we're, we're, we're you know we get an indication that that uh, our traditional time frame is off on this, but that's not really the point. The point is it's shepherds, and shepherds shepherds aren't the uh, they're not necessarily the ones that you would think of first to go make a make a declaration. But they are the ones that, once again, we're told an angel of the Lord, and he's not named here, but I suspect possibly again, um, Gabriel. Or I also wonder, I wonder if different angels got assigned different things to do 
at different times, you know, because you got to think they were looking forward to stuff for a long time too. And it would been, it'd be an honor for them to be able to do some of this stuff, but um, totally beside the point. But an angel Lord comes and says, do not be afraid before behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people for there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And so this proclamation being told to them, they're being told that all of the history, all the genealogy, all of the laws and traditions, everything that they've known at this point has all led up to this event and it has gone all the way back to the falling in Eden. I, I love the part where, you know, it, immediately the angel says, fear not. And that's exactly what the angel had said to Mary as well. And so mm -hmm. the Lord knows that when we encounter him, we are automatically afraid because mm -hmm. it's so different from our current existence and existence and to see outside of the realm of normal for us is frightening. And yet he immediately says, it's OK, it's me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that is that is pretty cool. Yeah, don't be afraid. It's okay. Not here to hurt you. <laughs> right, right. I'm I, I'm the one. I'm yeah, yeah. I look dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then what happens next is what I like I like to refer to it as the first ever Christmas carol because the angels that are all of a sudden like the it says the sky is filled with angels. Oh man, I would love to see that. I just, uh, I, my, in my mind's eye, I'm assuming these are beings who live close and next to God. And we know from reading things before that people who are in close physical proximity to God, they glow, they glow with that mm. from, from oh. just from being in the presence of God. And so it's not a stretch at all to consider that these angels filling the sky are lighting it up over these rolling hills, these rolling pastures. And, and, uh, you know, you can just kind of imagine how the, how, how that light would, would uh, uh, just go over the area as the hills get lit up, as the sheep get lit up, as the, as the, uh, the light shines down onto those shepherds. And, and this song comes out, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And if you've never noticed before, this at Jesus's birth is a proclamation of the law of God. This, when he say, say glory to God in the highest, later on, Jesus says, love God with all, in fact, it was before this, love God with all your heart and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's law is being expressed at Jesus's birth. I often wonder from the angel's perspective what this looked like. I'm sure that the shepherds were completely overwhelmed. Otherwise, the angel wouldn't have started off with fear not. <laughs> but when I think about what this must have looked like from the angel's perspective, I, I find it fascinating because they leave the glory of heaven and they come down to a dark, cool evening and they, you know, burst on the scene with, you know, triumphant song and, you know, message of, hey, guess what? Guess what? It's finally time. And mm. there's like a few small, dirty, scared faces peering up at them and then a bunch of sheep trying to figure out what to do. You know, <laughs> just it's so... It's so incongruous, you know, like where are the where are the masses that are excitedly looking upward, right? Mm. Nope. 
Nope, they don't exist. You just got these yeah. these guys that have been living in the dirt over here with the sheep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, the angels get sent to the lowest of the low. They get sent to these people who are disregarded. I mean, remember with the Egyptians, shepherds were considered, gross. I don't know, were you gross? Yeah. 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 yeah um, maybe. And I wouldn't say that the angels were specifically sent to the lowest of the low. I would say that in this case, because I think there are other places in the Bible where messengers from God come to people of all walks of society. I think in this case, for whatever reason, they came to who was ready. Mm-hmm. Well, and they come to shepherds and they're telling them about the birth of the lamb of God. Uh, so I think, I think there's something, I think there's something involved with that as well. Uh, that, that imagery, uh, you know, you play that out in your head a little bit, you see, hmm, that sort of makes sense. They might go to shepherds first. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, in the fact that how much of the Bible is given to agrarian people, like these are, Almost always the stories are the people who, who choose to interact with God are people who are raising lambs, like you were saying, Matt, or cattle or growing crops. You know, like one of our prophets was an almond farmer, you know, these kinds of things. And I, and I think this is fascinating to me because in a world of experts and scholars and all of that, those scholars, like biblical scholars spend their life studying the writings of shepherds. Um, and that has always struck mm. me as very interesting because it's, it's, it's the shepherd who is interacting with God. And then also this passage that you just read reminds me of the fact that in the, in the song, Oh, Holy Night, he uses this phrase. He says, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Mm. And, and to me, that's like the best, the best Christmas hymn. And it's, it was written by a French wine merchant. Like this guy wasn't, mm. he wasn't a pastor or a scholar or anything like that. He was just someone who was contemplating the birth of the Messiah. And mm -hmm. yeah, and he got it. Like he totally got it. Yeah. Well, that speaks to just, you know, how simple how simple the message really is, I, 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 and I say simple with full understanding that it's not simple to humans. We, the salvation that comes from God, we are incapable of doing for ourselves. But the salvation itself, God has made so easy for us, so simple. Uh, our pastor is going through a series of sermons on the gospel, and he's talking about how it's too good to be true. It's so simple that we have a hard time grasping it, that that it really is as simple, so simple that shepherds are going to get it, that construction workers are going to get it, that anybody, if you just let it be simple in your mind, it's not that hard. I kind of think that that's why when Jesus was teaching, he taught by parables. Right. So, again, he's teaching the average person mm -hmm. and he's not he's you know, he says it to his disciples. He's like, they don't they don't get the full thing. They don't get the full disclosure. It's mm -hmm. too it's too high. It's too complex. But you can see it in day to day life. And so those are the stories. Right. And so if you think of the parables, they're day to day occurrences where through through symbolism, you can see the gospel at work. And it makes it so that the average person goes, oh, yeah, okay, you know, 
So like, like what you were saying, Amy, about like preaching, bringing all this to an agrarian society, like think of the parable of the sower. And oh yeah. Just that was know, what they understood. Yeah. Something so basic as that, like that would have stuck with them for years. Why? Because they have their hands in it every day. They see it play mm -hmm. out every, every year, every crop season, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So it just seems like the paraboline started from the very foundation of this, of this mm -hmm. little life. Well, the shepherds go to see the baby. They say, let's go, let's go see it. And uh, it seems to me like they're the first, they're the first ones who get to see the Messiah after he's been born. Of course, other than Mary and Joseph, but um, these these simple men, these very very simple men who live a very simple life, are the first to go see uh, the Messiah, the Messiah who has been known as the Lamb of God. That's essentially the birth. Now, I, I'm going to go ahead and move forward, even though we're kind of we're kind of running along uh, on time here. But I'd like for us to be able to talk about the whole Christmas story. Um, Eight days later, they take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem isn't terribly far away from from uh, uh, Bethlehem. And so that would have been a, rather, a fairly simple journey for them. But so that Jesus can be circumcised and named on the eighth day of his life. And um, th this is important, I think, because we're shown that Jesus lives according to the law that has been presented. The law, all the laws that God made. Um even in his birth, they're they're following the simple uh, laws that were put out as far as eight days later, circumcise him, name him. Now, stuff happens in the temple, though, because as he's being presented as the firstborn, you have to if you remember back to when we were talking in in uh, Leviticus, firstborn sons had to be redeemed. They were they were they were considered holy to God. Firstborn animals had to be sacrificed. Firstborn children, firstborn sons could be redeemed. And so this is what Mary and Joseph are there to do. And we're told that they're redeemed by a sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. We're not given the specifics, but it's one of those. And it's interesting that they don't mention that it was a lamb because we're. Uh, this gives us the indication Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb for this sacrifice. And so this turtle dove or pigeons was uh, allowed as a substitution in that in that respect by God for for this to be able to happen. And so Jesus is redeemed as that uh, as that uh, firstborn. Then we meet a man named Simeon who's in the temple. It says he came by the Spirit to the temple, so he was sort of led there. This is interesting by the temple, and he had been um, he had been told that he would not die before he saw the Christ the messiah and um as he comes in he seems to immediately recognize that this is this is him and in a prayer that he gives he says he's going to bring light he's a light to bring revelation to the gentiles um at a you know in this society where where everything seemed to be all about israel you know everything was all about preserving in israel and now we're starting to look outside of Israel and the influence that is going to be there. And then another uh, person, her name is Anna. Uh, she's a widow and a prophetess who seems as always at the temple, like never leaves it and is constantly in fasting and prayer at the temple. And um, 
says when she sees Jesus, she went out and spoke of him, Jesus, to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And so these two people got to see something that they had been waiting for for a very long time. And now in this last piece of the Christmas story that we think of traditionally, we see that stuff happens not quite the way that we popularly portray it. Because we're told about the wise men from the east. But it begins in uh, Matthew chapter 2. In verse 1 it says, After Jesus was born, wise men came to Jerusalem. So the wise men did not show up at the stable to see Jesus lying in a manger. They came later. In some places they say they probably came months later. I don't know don't know how that plays out in my mind because they do eventually end up in Bethlehem but they're told they're told that or or they tell Herod when they come to Jerusalem that they're looking for the newborn king they say we followed his star which is fascinating because God was very much against things like astrology yet he uses these Persian men's knowledge of astrology or astronomy, a little bit of both here, in fact, uh, plus knowledge of prophecies that they had gotten uh, from, I want to say, Balaam. Yep. And, and they came looking for a king when nobody else was. I think they have to have been exposed to Daniel. I mean, they were most likely Persian. And so... Yeah. I am pretty sure that that's why they understood what this prophecy was and came looking. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. My, of, uh, my understanding is that they had, is that they were Zoroastrian in religion. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that Balaam of old, of talking mm -hmm. to status, mm -hmm. was sometimes loyal to god and sometimes practiced zoroastrianism himself and that he was the bridge that brought them across from their own people's writings to the jewish writings. that's the way i understand it yeah i think the, the 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 thing to take away from this the most though and we find we find that when they come to herod and say we're looking for the king and you know where's he supposed to be born and and herod has to go and ask the priests and they all have to kind of think about it it seems but they finally come back and say he's going to be born in bethlehem it, it, it demonstrates that they were able to study things and come with a certain understanding that things were going to happen an expectation that these things were going to happen and so it is rather fascinating. These guys who weren't even, they weren't even part of the religion, and they're the ones who come having studied, knowing what to expect. And the priests who you would expect would know what, what was going on at the time don't seem to know what's happening at all because they, they have. the impression that the priests didn't know what was going on. Where are you getting that? Well, they don't seem to be excited about anything. They certainly well, don't seem excited, to. excited, but they know. You mm -hmm. think they know that the Messiah has been born? Well, right. Okay, so here's what they say. Okay, so I'll start in verse 3. Uh, 3? Yeah, 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ child was to be born. 
They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is it written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew. Well, they knew where it was supposed to happen, but it right. doesn't seem like it doesn't seem to me like they were recognizing that it had happened until these guys came and said, "Hey, we're here. We're here to find the. We're here, here to see the king." I, I think what it was is they didn't know the specifics. They had the generalized understanding of the prophecy and where he was going to be born, and you know that kind of thing. But they didn't didn't know specifically, and that's what it was. And if we go back and, you know, like we've always talked before, is that when, after after um, Babylon, what we see is that when people, when those cultures took over Israel, they they studied their their culture. And I think that's where you get these, the, the wise men that were learned men. So when you think of that, they they had a good understanding of everything they had they could grasp, you know what I mean? Anything from a different culture that they felt that was going to increase their knowledge, they went after. And I think that's why you have them knowing about these prophecies. And I think it was just like, I think Amy had mentioned, you know what? I think they knew Daniel. I think they knew of Daniel. And I think when you, when you combine that, especially with their history of with Balaam and his ability, well, I don't know about ability, but his history of being a prophet and then going and, succumbing to the world that that gave them that foundation esoteric lines of thought or belief that are outside the traditional christian faith often study all resources so the, so people within the christian faith would be they would be reticent to study esoteric sources outside the Christian faith because because of not wanting to be led astray. But people outside the Christian faith are not nearly as shy to pick up the Bible and consider it a source of supernatural information if they're trying to get their get their brain around something. That goes on even today. So I, yep. I can just assume that that has been going on for thousands of years is that, you know, supernatural things recognize other supernatural things and study them all in an effort to get the big picture well and also yeah no it does it also reminds me of something we were talking about before we started recording today where it's not exactly a correlation but where sometimes it's good to look outside of your own thought processes beliefs to understand what somebody else believes and you and and find the common ground or at least find the talking points and it's kind of clear to me that at least here these wise men were looking outside of their zoroastrianism at at other things maybe you know what is it with these israelites what what what's the deal with them and they they found something that uh that they saw as a truth to be followed and i think i think a lot of this simply comes from a a polytheistic view of the world. So if if I hold a monotheistic view of the world and I believe that only this set of scrolls came from my monotheistic source, then I'm only going to want to study this set of scrolls. But if I hold a polytheistic view 
And I believe that there are multiple supernatural influences and influencers out there. I'm going to study them all. Yeah, I suppose so. Get a, you get a broader perspective and of of worldwide beliefs, even if uh, you know you're not following the one thread of truth. I don't know. There's there's some thought to be put into that. But anyway, the the priests tell him. They tell Herod. Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem and says, bring back word so that I can come and worship him too. The wise men go out and they start following the star again, which um, is interesting, makes me wonder, did it did it stop shining for a bit before they moved on to uh, Bethlehem? What was the reasoning behind that? But after they leave Herod, they follow the star again. It says they came to the house where Jesus is. And so they're, for, they're still in Bethlehem, at a later date from the birth, but they bring the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm sure there's probably symbolism in that. I've always wondered. I know that I've heard, okay, the gold, of course, gold just has value. Um, but some of those those spices, or um, that's not the right word to use, Those uh, the frankincense and myrrh, uh, I believe a lot of times, at least one of them for sure, was used in burial. When when later when Jesus is being was in the tomb and Mary went to prepare him that she was bringing some of these sort of things with her. And so this is it's a bit of a foreshadowing there in that that they're actually bringing stuff, whether knowingly or not, uh, that is looking forward to to that sacrifice. Um, Now, they're just very valuable things at the time too. Something they could they could have sold and yeah. and and used uh, for raising a baby. You know, we have our baby showers now, and here's some diapers, and you go, oh, thank you, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and and so uh, just the, the having the ability to to raise a child off of what they were given is probably uh, the point with that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was um, God's providence. They brought something valuable and. Joseph is about to need a lot of cash because yeah. they have to flee to they have to flee to Egypt, yep. and I'm sure that wasn't cheap even back then. Um, and I, I do find it very interesting that God gives a dream to these pagan kings. You know, these wise men are given a dream in which they're warned not to return to Herod. And you know, here we see again God reaching out to other people. Um, and since all of us are other people, I find this very appealing. God will reach out to us, even though we're not of the lineage of David or, you know, things like that. God, if, if we're willing to listen, God will reach out to us. Mm-hmm. What were yeah. you saying, Karen? Oh, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. 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 Reach out to us. If we're willing to open our eyes and look, if we're willing to, to see the signs you don't even necessarily have to be well studied. You just have to be open to it. And um, yes, where these guys were well studied, but they were also open-minded and found themselves in the presence of, of this one that had been promised for thousands of years. Um, searchers searching for the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so that should be where we try to find ourselves, you know, as we are, uh, we find ourselves moving into the Christmas season, the holiday season, and our thoughts are turning towards that birth, 
as we find ourselves in the traditions that we have, you know, gift giving and lights and Christmas trees and, you know, all those things, snowmen and Santa Claus, remembering that that the birth of Jesus um, was something that was for all of us. And it is something that we can accept and we can we can we can, if we keep that that open that openness to God and what he has done for us that we can be overwhelmed with the knowledge that the, of what this gift was and what really it all entailed for us. And as we've been looking at this now, you know, we've been seeing things and we're looking forward to his return. And we've been waiting 6,000 years now. It's been another 2,000 years since his birth, 2,000 plus. And I think we're coming, I mean, we've said it for a while, but I think we're coming close to that, to that return coming but as we've spent the last, you know, just here in the last three years of studying Old Testament stuff, looking forward to it. Now we're seeing the culmination of it. We're seeing it all come together. The joy to be felt in knowing that God makes promises. He keeps promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And he often does it in ways that we don't quite understand. I mean, who would ever think that when God said, I'm going to send somebody for you, that he meant, I'm going to come myself. And I'm going to take care of this for you. I don't know that people thought that. I don't. It it does. It barely computes in our minds now. Even as as Christians, when we wonder why, why would why would he do that himself? Uh, it's uh, it's a very humbling thought to to contemplate as we as we are in the Christmas season. And with that, uh, well, it's a bit of a long episode, but it's such a it's such a rich story. And I hope that uh, you, our listeners, I hope that I hope that you you come to appreciate a little a little deeper all of what it entails and what it means, and uh, and take it into consideration as as you go forward. With that, moving forward as we go through the Gospels, it's going to bounce around quite a bit. What I am going to say for us is let's look at. The chapters of Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1. Now, we won't probably talk about all of everything in those chapters. In fact, I know we won't. But if we are reading those chapters, that'll get us prepared for what we'll be talking about next week. So, once again, uh, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3 and John 1 as we move into uh, further into the Gospels. While you are reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. I would love to hear any insights that our listeners have about you know anything they might have gleaned over the last few years of uh, through the Old Testament, um, any, any insights they might have with Jesus' birth, uh, what it means to you. We'd love to hear that stuff from you folks. And so uh, reach out to us at ATTV podcast at theadventure.org. Remember, you can look us up on Facebook. Make sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family. And uh, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that we can reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.